The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning again. Welcome to All Saints. We're so glad you're here with us to worship the living God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Would you make my words your words and the meditation of all of our hearts pleasing in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this past week in the news, you may have noticed that there was an 8.2 earthquake off the shores of Alaska that triggered all sorts of tsunami warnings. Now, that's a good picture of what we've been seeing in our summer sermon series in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit came like an earthquake at Pentecost on the church. And chapter after chapter and week after week, we've seen the gospel go forth from Jerusalem with more and more ripple effects like a tsunami of changed lives. More case studies of conversions to Christ than any other, any other place in the Bible. And we have seen the gospel move beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, a pagan, tribal, and divided world, increasingly not unlike our culture today. Thanks to the genealogical research of my maternal grandparents all the way back in the 1970s, well before the internet, going from the courthouse records from county to county, I've known that my family lineage is a mixture of Scots, Irish, Anglo, French, and Czech. A native Texan, yes, but really a Euro-mutt. Like many of us, the spiritual lineage of our bloodline at the time of the book of Acts were pagan tribal peoples who knew nothing of the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's here in Acts 16, in Paul's second missionary journey, that we see a turning point where he takes the gospel from the Middle East 
onto European soil, a new continent where the gospel will transform its pagan cultures into a Christian consensus for more than a millennium. And from there, the gospel will reach much of the rest of the world. And so we should ask ourselves this morning, how does the gospel change lives in our text And what does this show us about how we need to let the gospel change us? Two points to consider, freedom and community. First, we see that the gospel brings freedom, true freedom. No doubt there were many converts that comprised the first church in Europe, but Luke, the author of Acts, chooses three for us to look at in chapter 16. So first, the Philippian jailer. Our text begins in verse 23 with Paul and Silas having been falsely accused of unlawfully disturbing the cosmopolitan city of Philippi, located in modern-day Greece. If you know your geography, just north of the Aegean Sea and just west of Turkey. Local officials stripped them and incited a violent mob to beat them bloody with rods. Then they threw them in prison and ordered the jailer to hold them. So what do we know of this Philippian jailer? He was likely a retired Roman soldier because that's who was given such blue-collar civil servant jobs. They made good jailers with their brutal military background, their knowledge of weapons and their experience in securing prisoners. But here, he moves from what's necessary to secure to what's cruel. Perhaps he's wanting to impress local officials with his brutality. Instead of addressing the oozing bloody wounds and broken bones of Paul and Silas, or at least letting them do so, verse 24 says he puts them in the inner prison no light, no airflow, and fastens their feet in the stocks. Now, I remember when I first encountered stocks. It was as a preteen on a long car trip with our family of four from Dallas to Washington, D.C. Maybe some of you have had some kind of car trip like this this summer or you're about to where my parents enjoyed a stereo melody from the back seat. She's on my side. He touched me. She's breathing my air. By the time our parents snapped the photo of us in the replica of public stocks in Colonial Williamsburg, they probably should have just left us there to learn how to get along with each other. Ancient Roman stocks are not like that at all. They were a form of torture because they spread apart your limbs, your legs, where they should, farther than they should be able to go, to create leg and muscle cramps with no way to get relief. And in response, what does the jailer see? Verse 25, about midnight, well, of course it was midnight, they weren't asleep, how could you sleep in those circumstances? Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. As one commentator puts it, singing helps us focus 
on the glorious eternal realities that may be clouded by the gloomy temporary realities. And the fellow prisoners were riveted, fascinated. They were amazed by such peace and joy in the face of cruelty, pain, and suffering. The jailer finally went to sleep. And then verses 26 and 27, suddenly there was a great earthquake, enough to open all the jail cell doors. God intervenes and everyone's bonds are unfastened. When the jailer realized the prison doors were opened and he assumed that the prisoners had escaped and he drew his sword to kill himself, he was a man of duty and honor in a shame and honor culture. He knew the penalty for letting the prisoners escape would be his own death, and he wasn't going to wait around for that. Verse 28, though, Paul cries out, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Not only did innocent Paul and Silas remain, they made sure the other prisoners remained as well. They upheld the law. The jailer realized Paul and Silas had the opportunity for payback They had the jailer's life in their hands, but instead of letting him take his life, they saved it. Instead of paying evil for evil, they overcame evil with good. They showed kindness to the unkind and mercy to the merciless. Like Christ on the cross, Paul and Silas forgave in the face of cruelty. This jailer had been indifferent to the things of God. But Paul and Silas showed him the gospel. Likewise, your response in dark, difficult circumstances may be just the opportunity for someone to encounter the gospel for the first time. Here we see that it's the gospel that brings true freedom. Paul and Silas were beaten, imprisoned in stocks in the dark, and yet joyfully singing, physically in chains, and yet truly free. How is that? It's because the main thing in their life, that which gave them meaning, hope, identity, self-worth, was Jesus. No circumstance or suffering could threaten their main thing. Though enchained in prison, they were truly free. They didn't need to get their freedom at the cost of the jailer's life because they were living in true freedom that had already been had at the cost of Jesus' life. Free from their past, no guilt. Free from their future, hope without fear. And free in the present where no circumstance, no suffering could rob them of what they value. And the jailer saw that, and he wanted it. Because though he held the keys, he was the one in prison, enslaved to duty and honor, the main thing that gave him meaning, identity, self-worth. And when he failed his duty, when his honor was threatened, he had nothing to live for. It's the jailer who was enslaved and Paul and Silas free. What irony. They show the jailer the gospel by living in the way of Jesus, who's done the same thing for us, beaten 
and torn so we can be made whole, confined so we can be liberated, executed that we might live. Friends, the jailer's life calls us this morning and asks us, where does your joy come from and how easily is it lost? Does it come from your health, comfort, security, success, or your children's success, being loved or respected? Or is the source of your joy so deep and fixed that no circumstance can threaten it, no stocks in your portfolio going up and down, or no beef broth stock that you forget in your recipe to ruin the dinner? Friends, the gospel of Jesus brings true freedom to live in the kind of joy that Paul and Silas are living in. Only the gospel of Christ can bring you the freedom to forgive in the face of unspeakable cruelty. Some of you may remember, seven years ago this summer, Dylan Roof walked into Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and opened fire and murdered nine people in a Bible study. Only 48 hours after losing their loved ones, family members appeared for the murderer's bond hearing. And when the judge invited them to make a statement, Nadine Collier went first and forgave the gunman for killing her mother. And then family members of other victims followed her lead in forgiveness. Only the gospel of Jesus brings such freedom to forgive like that. And so when the jailer sees such freedom, verse 30, he wants to know, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? He's a practical man of action. He wants to fulfill his duty to do whatever is required to be saved. Like Naaman in our Old Testament reading from 2 Kings 5, he's also a military man of action, but with leprosy. He's told he can be healed by the God of Israel, but he thinks he needs to do something to earn such healing or have something done to him special. But God's prophet Elijah said, Elisha says, just go and wash in the Jordan River. Naaman is insulted and furious, but I don't need to do something, give money to the church, teach ESL or VBS or volunteer with side-by-side -side kids or East Austin Young Life, just wash. Any child can do that. And yes, that's the point, Naaman. That's the point, jailer. There's nothing to do to be saved but believe. Look to Christ for what he has done for you. Salvation is free. And this is Jesus' point to Nicodemus in our gospel reading from John chapter 3, where he says, verses 14 and 15, as Moses lift, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's referring there to the Old Testament story in Numbers 21, 
where the Israelites in the wilderness rebel against God and are smitten with a plague. Many are dying, and they cry out in repentance to God, God, I'm sorry. So God tells Moses to put a bronze serpent up on a pole. Anyone who looks at the bronze serpent will live. For you medical professionals, Moses' bronze serpent on a pole, even today, is still a symbol of healing. Just looking at the serpent was something any Israelite could do. And Jesus is saying his salvation is like that. All you have to do is look. Salvation of Christ is free. Just believe in the one who earned it for you. And when the Acts 16 jailer gets it, look at how the gospel changes him. Verse 33, instead of callous indifference to others' needs, he's free to show compassion to Paul and Silas. It says that same hour of the night he washed their wounds. His compassion extends to his loved ones who don't know Christ yet. It says all his family are baptized with him. Yes, the gospel brings true freedom, true freedom to forgive, to know joy in all circumstances, to show compassion for others, and then point two, the gospel brings community. But not just any community, a community of real diversity. Acts 16 ends in verse 40 with Paul and Silas at Lydia's house in community with what it says are the brothers. A better translation would be the brothers and sisters, the brethren. Now, who all is Luke referring to here, the brethren? He is referring to all who had become Christians as a result of Paul and Silas's time in Philippi. In addition to the jailer and his family, chapter 16 recounts two other converts to help us understand the nature of this newly born Philippian church. Verse 40 says they visited Lydia. She was the first convert in Acts 16, and she was a wealthy Asian businesswoman in luxury fabric business. And that's why she had a large home that could accommodate this young church. Unlike the jailer, she had been spiritually interested in God and engaged with Paul as he explained to her about Jesus. Instead of showing her the gospel, like the jailer, Paul reasoned with her and she listened and believed. And then the third con. The third convert in the book of Acts, chapter 16, is a Greek, demon-possessed slave girl. Somehow, she was controlled by masters who made money from her demonic ability at fortune-telling. She was not only a slave spiritually, she was a slave practically. When Paul casts out her demons in the name of Jesus, her handlers are so upset because they can no longer make money off of her, they're the ones who put up the violent mob, who encourage the local authorities that uh, Paul and Silas may be brutally beaten and falsely imprisoned. 
The conversions of Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer emphasize that the gospel not only brings true freedom, but a truly diverse community. Completely different lives, yet all together regularly gathered in a family of Christian faith. Just think of their differences. Socioeconomically, an insider and upper class, an outsider in lower class, and a regular guy in the middle class. Racially, we have an Asian, a Greek, and a Roman. Spiritually, open, the slave girl hostile, and the jailer indifferent. Mentally, rational, the slave girl deranged or intuitive, and the jailer concrete and practical. And their demeanor, gentle, erratic, and brutal. Friends, there is no Christian type because the gospel of Christ is for all types, and the reason is because it's true. And particularly for Paul, the diversity of these three converts highlights God's sense of humor in Paul's life. Before his conversion, as a first-century Orthodox male Jew, Rabbi Saul would have awakened every day with the following prayer. O Lord, I thank you that you didn't make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Amen. Yes, God delights to defy our expectations. What the world despises, God redeems in Jesus. What the world divides, God unites in Christ. Friends, don't ever look at someone and think, they'd never be interested in Jesus. That's the sin of presumption. Instead, we are to gossip the gospel to anyone because it's for everyone. God's all about bringing unity and diversity because that's his nature. Three persons in one God, perfect unity in beautiful diversity. And so is his church. It was true then, and it's true today. Unlike the other world religions, Christianity is not dominated by one area of the world. The demographic and geographic center of Islam, for example, has always been the Middle East and Arabia. It's always been India for Hinduism, China for Confucianism, Asia for Buddhism. But Christianity, as we know, started in the Middle East, and as we are seeing moved through the Mediterranean and Hellenistic world, and then Northern Europe, North America, and now there are more African, Latin American, Asian, and Chinese Christians than in all of Western Europe and Northern America combined. In fact, today, the cultural diversity of Christianity is amazingly balanced worldwide. Roughly 20% of the world's Christians are in North America, 20% in Europe, 20% in Asia, 20% in Latin America, and 20% in Africa, with the latter two areas especially on a growth trajectory. Lydia, a slave girl, and a jailer. Great diversity and yet all fundamentally the same. They were the same when they met Paul. 
They were all slaves. The jailer was a slave to duty and honor, as we have seen, and the slave girl to a demon and her owners. And Lydia, how was she a slave? She was a slave to accomplishments, success, comfort, things, all that money can buy. Then I'll be happy, she thought, she lived. And when she got it, it didn't satisfy. She was looking for something else that satisfied, and that's when Paul came along. Duke professor Stanley Hauerwas says this, time and time again, you are told that freedom of ideas is the most important idea, but freedom is the great illusion. Everyone is enslaved to something. The goal of faith is to make you enslaved to the right stuff. Christians exist to demonstrate to our culture that true freedom is being yoked to what is true, and that's Jesus, unquote. Friends, you either serve Christ or you serve a false master. So choose your master or recalibrate. We're designed to live for something and any other master but Jesus. If you fail it, like the jailer, you'll be in crisis. What do I live for? And if you serve it and get it, like Lydia, you'll experience a slow, creeping despair and increasing realization of emptiness. Paul and Silas had the only master who forgives if you fail him and utterly satisfies you with his love and beauty if you get him. He's the only master who gives true freedom, freedom to love and serve those who are so different from you and to sing with joy, even in the dark. British preacher Charles Spurgeon from the 19th century says this, confident hope breeds inward joy. The man who knows that his hope of glory will never fail him because of the great love of God of which he has tasted, that man will hear music at midnight. May we all taste and hear and see afresh today and be encouraged. Would you join me in prayer? Eternal God, you are the light of the minds that know you. You are the life of the souls that love you. You are the strength of the wills that serve you. Help us so to know you that we may truly love you and so to love you that we may fully serve you for to serve you is perfect freedom. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.